Let us pray. Father, as we come to you, we are most grateful for your plan, your provision, and your presence in our lives. We're thankful for your son, Jesus, and the way that we can come together during this season and sing about him all of the familiar songs that we know. Lord, this time of the year is special. For we are looking forward with great anticipation to his birth. Now, Lord, we know that he's already been born, but helping us get our minds around the fact that there is an expectancy of hope and peace and love because of Jesus helps us reorient our lives during this season to know that the season is about Him and nothing else. Lord, as we consider Your Word today, would your spirit be in this place? Would it weigh heavy inside of these walls? Would it penetrate our hearts and minds in such a way that we become more like you by the time that we leave this place than when we came? Lord, may our worship be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are looking at this idea of a countdown towards Christmas. And as the staff uh, was, was looking what, how we were going to put the Advent together this year, we really began to consider this idea of working backwards to the birth in the life of Jesus. So today, we'll look at his resurrection. Next week, we'll look at his death uh, the week after, we'll look at his life. And then the week of Christmas Eve and Christmas, we'll look at his birth. And we found an interesting passage in, or in, interesting two verses in the book of Galatians that kind of tied everything together. It reads this in, in verse 4 of chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And as we began to consider what this meant when we were thinking about a countdown, this idea of the fullness of time really grabbed our attention. You see, God had a plan from way back. Really beginning in Genesis 3, in, in, you know, Prior to that as well, but Genesis 3, it really came into sharp focus when Adam and Eve sinned, and then God had to figure out a way to restore his people back to him so that they could be whole with him and they could be with him forever and ever and ever. And that plan, of course, included Jesus. And so throughout the entire Old Testament, the two, three thousand year period between Genesis 3 and Jesus, 
God was slowly, methodically beginning to work out his plan so that in the fullness of time, Jesus would have come. Why does he come? He comes to redeem those who were under the law. And as a result, that we might receive adoptions as sons and daughters of the one most high. We began to consider, I began to consider this week in the resurrection and and how the resurrection really applies to us today. Many of us know the story of the the resurrection and the importance of it. Jesus died. Three days later, he rose again. He defeated sin and death. Through that, he gives us eternal life. That is terrific. That is not to be understated. That is to be celebrated. But I think oftentimes we get lost in the fact that we think eternal life begins at death. When in fact, eternal life begins now. Death is just one of the uh, hurdles we jump over to really be in everlasting life with Jesus forever and ever and ever, absent of sin. But there is a part of eternal life that is in the here and now on earth where sin is present in our lives. And we think to ourselves, okay, how does the resurrection affect my life today? Well, we often breeze over this fact that not only did Jesus conquer death, but he also conquered sin. And that should give us all great hope because when we rely on his power and we lean into him and that spirit, that his spirit that dwells inside of us, as we'll see in a few minutes, when that happens... We are able to resist temptation. We are able to have a new life and leave our old life behind. And we're not able to, and we don't brood over the past. We don't have the regrets. We don't have the resentments. We don't have the hangups. Because of what Jesus had done on the cross and through his resurrection, he gives us that new life. That gives us hope. It's been said that the church should be the hope of the world. And we're going to explore that a little this morning. There are three barriers that prevent us, the church, from leading our nation to a better hope. I am firmly convinced, the more that I read Scripture and the more that I dwell on it, I am firmly convinced that Christians ought to be in the forefront of societal change. We ought to be the forefront of helping people understand peace, understanding love, understanding hope. Because of what Jesus has given us. But there are barriers that prevent us from that. The first or preconceived notions, or preconceived opinions. John Calvin once wrote, they bring a darkness over the mind in the midst of the clearest of light. He's speaking of doubt here. How many times have we doubted ourselves? How many times have we second-guessed ourselves? 
How many times do we know what we know is right, and yet we do the things that aren't right? You see, the mind can play tricks on us and can bring a darkness into our life even though we're in the midst of the clearest light. Secondly, the heart. Its passion can deceive you at a moment's notice without warning or without care. Those of us who've gone down the rabbit trail of clickbaiting online know of this, right? I mean, you're reading an article, you're like, oh, this is great. And then you see that little clickbait thing. You're like, oh, that's interesting. And a half hour later, it leads you down a rabbit trail. You're like, what am I doing? Why am I on this page? Why am I looking at this stuff? Why am I reading this stuff? You're like, ah, because it's so subtle. And the passion can deceive us. We see the story of David as this almost being the, one of the most evident things, you know, or, um, examples in Scripture. For those of us who know that story of David and Bathsheba, we, we know it well. David, the, at the time, king of Israel, his armies were out extending the kingdom. Life was great. The kingdom was great. Everything was good. He walks out on his balcony one day. He looks down. He sees on another balcony a very beautiful woman bathing nude. He says, ah, got to have her. Boom, just like that. And this is a man after God's own heart. You see how our hearts can betray us in a moment's notice. Third, the will. Its unrelenting allegiance to the status quo kills new growth. This is one of the stumbling blocks that we all have much of the time. Lord, I want to change, but don't change that. Lord, I really want to change this, but don't change that. We see this in many people when they uh, uh, invariably uh, have their New Year's resolutions. And we say, okay, I'm going to exercise, so I go gym membership. Oh, you mean that I've got to now set a priority and, and, and I've got to change my lifestyle just a little bit in order to lose that weight or to get stronger? Uh, I, no, no, you can't touch that. We're always looking for that easy solution. And it's the will, it's unrelenting allegiance to the status quo that kills us from growing. These are the three major barriers that prevent us from extending a better hope to society as a whole. This morning, Scripture, through one historical event, will offer us the knowledge the desire, and the motive to break through these barriers so that we may be on the forefront of leading our nation, our society, our neighborhoods, our families to a better hope. So better hope is a resurrected life. And we can begin to live that today, right now. One field of love, power, peace, hope, Joy, humility, and expectancy. 
It's that, it's that optimistic expectancy that little kids have when they run down the stairs or through the hallways Christmas morning because they can't wait to see what gifts are under the tree. What if we had that child life expectancy in our life of waking up every morning and thinking, wow, what does God have for us today? What does he have for me today? How am I going to bless someone else? How am I going to extend love to my neighbor? How can I help my friend who is going through an awful time with her husband through offering a, a ray of peace, demonstrating how Jesus might if given the opportunity, help reconcile that relationship? What would it look like to encourage a brother, a sister, or a friend who's struggling with addiction that they could be liberated from that? When they fully rest in God's will and allow Jesus to work in their heart, and allow the Holy Spirit to wash over them so that that temptation will eventually go away. Not that there won't be struggle in their life. It's not easy. But what if we woke up every morning looking for opportunities to extend the expectant hope that we have inside of us to those that we love and care for? This resurrected life is led by the one who led, leads us from life or from death to life. It's a procession. Imagine him walking down this aisle in procession and us following behind as Jesus leads us from death to life. That is the power of the resurrection. And some people kind of scoff at that, and they're like, that's impossible, that doesn't make sense. And I'm not really quite sure if that's even possible. How can somebody be raised from the dead? Well, there's a number of places in Scripture in, during Jesus' ministry where that, in fact, happened. One of the most notable ones was that his friend Lazarus. After three days of being dead, Jesus came to his house and he says, get up. And he got up and he lived again. There's two other times in his life. and There's a couple times that the apostles have done it. So we know that a life can be resurrected from death to life. But what does that mean for us? How can that resurrected life help break down our preconceived opinions? How can it help mold our hearts so it doesn't deceive us as much? How can it bend our will to God's will? It's only through Jesus through one man. In fact, 
The Apostle Paul was so convinced of this when he wrote to the Corinthians church in the first letter to the Corinthians church. He wrote this about the resurrection. I just lost my place. I just looked and I'm in 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians. So give me just a second. His, his grace abounds. Uh, and he has a sense of humor too. Oh, goodness. He says this. He simply says that if the resurrection did not happen then we as Christians ought to be the most pitied people on the face of the planet. Everyone else should make fun of us because we believed in a lie. He says that if the resurrection didn't happen, then his preaching, the preaching of God's word is in vain. It doesn't matter. I would suggest to you that the resurrection was the single most significant event in the entire Bible. Because if it didn't happen... Why are we here? We ought, might as well be a social club doing good things and, hope, and wishing good thoughts for people. But the resurrection did happen. It is a historical event. And that's where the power comes in to our lives. When Paul was writing to the Romans church, we, uh, we learned about this a few weeks ago in Romans 6. Here's where the power comes in. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall be certainly united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you see what happens when we're united in Christ? The body of sin has been brought to nothing. That tells us that it no longer has power over us, that there is something that has a greater power over us that can conquer sin that can defeat sin, that now you have the ability to resist temptation in the midst of temptation. That is a categorical fact. This is how it works. He continues, he says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin for once of all, but life he lives and lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. So then what do we do? This is where 
It affects the heart and the will. Let not sin therefore reign in your body to make it obey your passions. Do not present the members of your body, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, um, the sense of smell, sense of touch, all of that as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God for those who've been brought from death to life for your members to God as instruments for righteous. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. You're, you're under the unmerited favor of God because he loves you. Why does he love you? Because he created you in his likeness and his image. Because when he designed us from the very beginning, he did not design us to have sin in our bodies. That is why I am convinced that when people die, even though that Christians in particular, when Christians die and they leave everyone behind that loves them, it's a very bittersweet time. Why is it bittersweet? Because we were never meant to die. We were meant to live forever and ever and ever and be with each other forever and ever and ever. And yet sin, the wages of sin is death, as scripture would say cuts that relationship. And that's the bitterness we feel in the midst of death. But there's a sweetness on the other side, knowing that one day we will be with our loved one once again, forever and ever and ever. But if we didn't have the hope of the resurrection because we weren't united to Jesus Where do we go? Where is that hope? There is none. There's just a bunch of ashes or a body in a casket, and that's it. Do you see the power of the resurrection? The resurrection, the, resurrection, the resurrection can heal relationships. I've seen this time and again. I mentioned, may have mentioned to you guys um, last year, I had a friend of mine in a um, re- uh, rehab home. He, uh, in his former life, he was a mafia hitman. No joke. He killed people for a living. He said he'd eat a sandwich over you after he'd kill you. Um, He became paralyzed, Um, ward of the state, family in New York wouldn't have anything to do with him, stuck here in Arizona. And I would visit him once a week along with a few others in, in a similar physical condition. And I would, we would visit about the death and resurrection of Jesus and over a two year period, I saw a very anger, bitter man who hated the world and just wanted to die, blossom into this new man who wanted to live and extend God's love to everybody in that care facility. Because he realized that he had a new life. He realized that the sin that he's committed from years and years and years ago, that was dealt with on the cross 
And he was liberated from that. That he didn't have to think about that anymore. He didn't have to brood over the past. He, amazingly, in that time, that regret and that resentment and that hatred all melted away. Because he got to know Jesus in a way that he had never gotten to know him before. That's the power of the resurrection. That's the power of a resurrected life that is available to all of us to extend to our loved ones, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. As a church, the resurrection gives us the permission and power for us to live with an expectant hope of a life changed. It provides a community of like-minded people pursuing a like-minded goal. The church, living out the resurrected life, provides rich and fertile soil for souls from the outside to come, be a part of our community so that they can be nourished and they may grow as it was designed by our Creator. How cool is that? What would it look like in our community if we had people flocking, not just to the Sunday morning thing that we do, but to everything that we do? We've got a number of different small groups. We have a number of different events throughout the year. And what if we began to connect people to us through those things? And they begin to hear our stories of a resurrected life. And they're like, wait a second, I want that because my life isn't all peaches and cream. I've had my struggles. I have my habits. I have my hangups. I've made a lot of mistakes. I have my regrets. I have my resentment. I have my guilt. I have my shame. I have my embarrassment. And I'm stuck and I don't know what to do. I read these self-help books and they help temporarily. I look to these different philosophies and they help temporarily. I look to these other religions and they help temporarily. I even put a little, take a little of this and a little of that, try to cobble something together myself so that I can navigate myself through life and I wind up in a cul-de-sac 10 years later. The harvest is plenty. What it would it look like if we lived that resurrected life to where we could be the instruments in God's hands to reach out to those folks through a relationship, through an authentic relationship. We're not selling anything. We're just loving people and loving on people and caring for them and asking them about their days and asking them about their lives. And bringing them bread when we make bread. And bringing them cookies when we make cookies. And inviting them over for dinner. And inviting them to events. And just showing that we care for them. What would it look like if one by one and two by two. Over the next two, three, four, five years. That we began to do that as a collective body. How would that give hope to the people in this community? We have an unmatched opportunity to turn heads. 
There's not another philosophy or religion that is able to move the needle towards civility, decency, respect, and love as we, the church, living out a resurrected life. So, here are three assignments for you to get started. First, deepen your relationship with Jesus. Speak to Him when you're driving down the road. Speak to Him when you're doing dishes. Speak to Him when you're mowing the yard in the backyard, or mowing the, mowing the yard, washing the car, doing laundry. Investigate Him a little more. Explore who He is. Search Him out. Begin with reading the Gospels. Get involved with a small group here of other like-minded people pursuing the, a like-minded goal of figuring out who he is and how he can impact your life. Wrestle with him. Have others challenge you. As Scripture says, iron sharpens iron, so as one man sharpens another. We need each other in order to grow, in order to be nourished. Remember, he is the living well. He is is the well of living water that will nourish your soul and change you. Do you remember that story of the women at the well in the book of John? Some of us know that story well. Here it is, this, this woman, she had five relationships with men. We don't know if she was married to them or not. We get the impression that she was not. And she's in a sixth relationship with a man. Jesus goes to the well, which was um, a place to get water. as a gathering place for the local community. He went to the well in the middle of the day, in the middle of the heat of the day. And this is when people would never go to the well. Who wants to carry buckets of water a mile or two in the heat of the day? They were in the desert And it gets very hot over in that part of the world, much like it gets hot here in Phoenix. So just think, July, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, are you fired up to carry about 10 gallons of water? Two miles? No! But here Jesus shows up. And this woman shows up to get some water. Now why would a woman show up in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day? Well, the thought is, is that she was a very scorned woman of that community. Why? Because that community had very high sex, uh, sexual ethics. They believed in sexual purity to the nth degree. And here's this woman who's been with five men, and she's living with the sixth. Nobody wants to be around her. She's impure. So I could just imagine if she showed up at 6 o'clock at the well, like everybody else does as the sun goes down and the, the coolness of the day starts to return, I would imagine people would kind of scatter and part way, you know, give her her space, and nobody would talk to her, and people would be, right? So she's like, I, I don't need any of that. I'm just going to go by myself and not worry about it. And who does she meet at the well? She meets Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, I know you're thirsty. I can give you living water. I can give you something that your soul is desperately wants. 
It's malnourished. She believes Jesus. She goes back to her village with the water, and she begins to describe the encounter with Jesus, and people marvel at her knowledge. Marvel. She's a changed woman with one encounter with Jesus. She's living that resurrected life, and people can't believe it. This can't be the same woman. Who did you meet? I met this guy named Jesus. What did he do to you? Oh, he gave me living water. He allowed me to drink deeply. And here's the kicker. Two kickers. First, Jesus knew this woman because he said, I know you've been living with five guys. Or you've, left, you've let, lived with five guys and you're living with the sixth right, one right now. But I'm still extending you water. And the other kicker is when when his disciples came back, his friends came back, they knew about this woman. And when they came back to the well, they see him talking with the woman. And you know what their first thought was? <gasps> what are the people going to say about Jesus because he's talking with this woman of disrepute? Man, the rumor is going to fly. Jesus, do you not know who you're talking to? He says, I know exactly who I'm talking to. What's wrong with y'all? You see, they didn't even know Jesus. They didn't even know the resurrected life that he would offer. And they were following him for three years. And some of them didn't even get it till the end where this woman got it in one encounter. Drink deeply. And frequently from him. Allow him to change your life the way that he changed that woman's life. Secondly, flee sin immediately. You have a new life. Leave the old life behind, as Paul said in Romans. Embrace the new life. You don't have to do that stuff anymore. Leave it. And you don't have to worry about the regret or the resentment or the guilt or the embarrassment or the shame. I'll never forget when I became a Christian and I got that. How instead of walking around like this because I had so much weight on my shoulders, I was now walking around like this. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness I'm forgiven of everything that I've ever done that was ever wrong. And I no longer had, you no longer have to carry around that guilt and that embarrassment, and that shame, because you are forgiven. Christ took that to the cross, and then through his, the resurrection, he defeated it. <sighs> Leave your old life behind and do not brood over the past. Rather, strain towards the prize that is in front of you. Third, listen to the Holy Spirit. He is the one who applies the new life to your life. He will lead you to truth and away from temptation. He will guide your decisions and shed light on Scripture. He will motivate you to act so that your will is bending to God's will. Here's the point. God has given us the tools to the church to resurrect society one person at a time. So hop on board the expectant hope train and let's do this.
Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, we are so grateful. for having the plan and love, having the plan in mind and the love of us to provide a resurrection so that death and sin are defeated once and for all. Let that seep into our mind so that we are no longer double-minded, so that we no longer have these preconceived opinions. Let it seep into our hearts so that our hearts won't deceive us at the degree and the speed that they deceive us today. And let it break our will so that we become humble to you and allow you to lead us For you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We look forward with great expectancy to what you are going to do in each of our lives as we aspire to live out that resurrected life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.